Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today we conclude our series and we do so by looking at the person and character of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus as he is best known. I'm really hoping that as we look at this character, this pivotal character of the whole of the Christmas story, we will learn something afresh about the enormity of Christmas and the enormity of this man's role in this situation. Today, or this evening I should say, you will hear me use the phrase, I wonder if, a few times, not because of any doubt or uncertainty that we have around the text, but simply because I want to invite you to explore this character in perhaps a way that we have never done so before. So I will come to a few of, I wonder if, as I go through this evening. We're going to begin by reading three short passages, all from Matthew. The first one is Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Then we jump into Matthew 2, from 13 to 14, and then 19 to 21. Matthew 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus into Matthew chapter two. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about the search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt. And verses 19 to 21 of the same chapter says these words. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared I suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Joseph is a remarkable, remarkable man. By some accounts and some traditions, scholars say that he was older than Mary, but we have no biblical evidence whatsoever. We have no historical evidence again for this. In fact, an argument can be made from scripture that suggests he was around the same age as his bride. Actually, scripture points to him being around 18 years of age. And personally, I find his story intriguing. He fascinates 
and draws me in. The two characters in the Bible that move me more after Jesus are King David and Joseph himself. How he copes with this situation, with this baby's life, the son of God born into his care and protection is mind-blowing. Guys, I ask you to imagine this with me for a moment. You are planned, you're planning to get married. You're engaged, the wedding is organized. Everything is planned. You've worked out the seating arrangement and you've probably asked Zechariah to say grace because he's a priest and it will keep that side of the family happy. If you ever have to do grace at a wedding or ask anybody, you usually ask the pastor because they can do those sort of things. So they probably would have chosen Zechariah. You have worked out that your auntie and your uncle who were once happily married are now divorced and are not speaking to each other, but both of them have to come to the wedding, but they can't sit at the same, sit at the same table. So they have to be positioned at opposite sides of the room. Everything is sorted out in your head, planned, good to go, and you have been working on your marital home because you are a carpenter. You have found this wonderful lass and you were amazed that she loves you and you are actually amazed that she wants anything to do with you and yes she has agreed to marry you your life is stretched out in front of you everything is planned nothing can go wrong until someone tells you she is pregnant and you panic because the only possible reason for this to have happened is that she has slept with someone else, because you know it's not you. She has been unfaithful, and we know that Joseph, when he hears the news that she is pregnant, he is not happy, that forgiveness is not really a high priority for him. We know that he decides that he can't stay with her. He can't say, I forgive you, love, and we'll still get married. He decides that he can't do that. As we read again, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. He wasn't able to forgive her at this stage. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remarkable, simply remarkable. Or have we become so accustomed to this story that we quickly move on from the reality, and if I can say this, the hellishness of the decisions that they have to make, and we move on to the next part of the Christmas story. Has it become so natural in our mind that we move forward because we know what's going to happen. Joseph finds out that his betrothed, which in Jewish culture is as good as being married, is expecting a baby. And his response is, I'm not going to disgrace her, but I'm definitely not going to marry her. My name will be laughed about behind closed doors and my family's reputation destroyed. So he puts in plan puts in place a plan to divorce her quietly. See, because in Jewish cultures, we've heard if you're engaged, you still need a certificate of divorce. It's quite complicated, far more complicated than we know anything here in the West. 
And then God speaks to him and says in a dream, Joseph, the child is mine. Don't be embarrassed, but marry her and give this woman and little boy a home. And one of the many things that amazes me about Joseph is this. He doesn't say, okay, thanks, God. Thank you, angel. Can I have six months to think about it? This is a massive decision. I want six months to think about it. Or just give me six weeks. Or perhaps just give me six days. Or I must pray about it. And what we read is that he woke up. And in verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took her as his wife. What is this all about in real terms? One dream, and he decides to obey. I have to confess, I couldn't have done this because there isn't a chance that I would have woken up and said, oh, that's fine. Let's go with this wonderful plan. My whole life is about to be messed up. One dream, though, for him, and he is willing to change his whole life. One word from God and plans are altered. It begs the question, how often, how much does God have to speak to us about something before he catches our attention, let alone before we obey? It is quite a challenge that this man's readiness to obey as soon as God has said something to him. There have been maybe two or three occasions that I know that I know that I know that I have heard the voice of God in my Christian life, which has been going on now for about 46 years. But most of my life, I would reckon, perhaps yours too, is not lived in such heady heights, is not lived in that that space and in that clarity that God says it, I know that it was God, and so I am in. I don't hear his voice that clearly. But look at this man. Look at this man, Joseph. Not only once, But three times more, four times, God says something and he obeys it instantly. What an incredible, incredible man. So with this as our foundation for this evening, I'd like to highlight for us four simple truths about Joseph that I hope will be both encouraging and challenging. But I do want to encourage you that they get shorter as they get along. So um, don't worry if, gosh, that was point one and we're only on point two and it's Quarter past eight. I want to talk first of all about the power of a changed mind. I want to talk about the power of a changed mind for both men and women. And for some of us, if not all of us, it is hard to do. But when we are willing to change our mind, it indeed becomes life-giving. Every time God says something to Joseph, he does it. Joseph is not so set in his ways, yet he is humble enough to change his mind, humble enough to listen to the Holy Spirit, humble enough to say, okay, let's do it. T.D. Jakes, Bishop T.D. Jakes, in his own inimitable style says this, there is nothing as powerful as a changed mind. You can change your hair, your clothing, your address, your spouse, your friends, But if you don't change your mind, the same experience will perpetuate itself over and over again because everything outwardly changed, but nothing inwardly changed. Yet Joseph is a remarkable man as he is willing to change his mind and marry a girl who he thought he knew, but now he's not quite so sure. And as time goes by, he is willing 
even to take his family to Egypt, to Egypt and back, and then back to Israel, and then back to Nazareth. I love the words of Corrie Ten Boom when she wrote, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. But this seems to be how Joseph lived his life before God. Here is a man who is the earthly father of Jesus Christ, who was used to living with a comfort, in a comfortable life, who is to become a refugee, a part of a refugee family, fleeing here, there, and everywhere, all because he is not afraid to trust his unknown future to, to a known God. You know, we often hear around Christmas, and we've heard it over the last three or four weeks if you've been here, that for 400 years, the prophetic word of God had been silent, which is true, that there's this gap of 400 years and there's no, real, there's no prophetic word at all from God. And mainly that is spoken when we reference people like Mary and Simeon and Anna, and we talk about them, that they waited, and when God spoke, there was this incredible sense of faith But if it's true for them, it's also true for Joseph. He knows that God has not spoken prophetically or appeared in that sense for 400 years. He is exactly in the same category as them. He too knows that God has been silent and then this happens. Wouldn't you be a little bit reluctant if God hadn't spoken for 400 years to to put all your eggs in one basket as it were and when this angel appears and says, I'm in? I wonder, because he was willing to change his mind and live like this, did Joseph feel like other fathers? How many times did he have to start again? How many times did he have to walk in the room and say, come on, here we go again? A remarkable man that changed his mind because the Holy Spirit touched him and prompted him. He was able to change, be flexible, be willing enough for his plans to be turned upside down. I wonder if in this Christmas and New Year season, we are willing to change our plans, our best laid plans, if the Holy Spirit asked us to. If he asked us to change, could he say something to us and we'd be willing to listen and do it? It's an inherent challenge for us all. You know, it should go without saying we would say yes, but sadly, I'm not sure that would be the truth. Please note that when I say this to change your mind, this is not a call to mental gymnastics and change our mind all the time, to flip-flop, flip-flop, back and forth. God told me this, then he told me that, then he told me the next thing. That's just wrong. That's just weird. God doesn't do those sort of things like that. But God's speaking to us, and we know that we know that he has, and he says, I am going to do it. So often we allow God to change his mind and our mind because it suits our circumstances, not the sense of his plan and calling on our life. But the willingness to be strong enough of character and secure in who we are and who we are in God to say, having done this or having walked this way for such a long time, to be able to say, I believe God has whispered to me and from now on I am going to change and walk this way. I am willing to change something that he challenges me about. For some, it may be the humility to say, I have been wrong for years in whatever that may be, in relationships or attitudes or finance, whatever, and I am going to change because God has spoken to me. 
I love the quote of Malcolm Gladwell when he says this, occasions when you change your mind should be cherished because they mean that you're smarter than you were before. I think that's so good. Here's the power of a changed mind. And secondly, I want to talk about his righteousness was mixed with mercy. The next of the many qualities that I love and find so humbling about Joseph is that although he was right and he had been wrong, wronged, he chose to act with mercy and with kindness. So often the temptation for some of us, or maybe it's just me, is if we are proven to be correct or right or vindicated about something that we were accused of being in the wrong about, there comes the very real temptation to push back unrighteously with a person that who has been our accuser. On one hand, there is nothing as sad as seeing someone who has been wronged, apart from seeing someone who has been proven right and then acting unkindly and ungraciously to who the people who said that they were wrong. Right, but not acting righteously. What we see lived out here in this story of Joseph is nothing short of amazing. Even before the angels visit, it is clear that Joseph hadn't planned to respond to what he can assume is Mary's adultery by carrying out the letter of the law. We'll come to that in a second. He chose to do something that would still protect her. He chose not to follow the letter of the law. The punishment for adultery allowable in the law in the Torah was stoning to death. You know, John 8 verses 1 to 6 tells us, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What, now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Joseph had every right. He had every right to have Mary publicly humiliated and stoned to death. And if he had, through this decision, he would have also put to death the child that was in the womb. Stop and ponder that for a moment. We skate over these things. Joseph had every right to have Mary publicly humiliated and stoned to death, but if he had, through this decision, he would have put to death the child that was in the womb. One of those I wonder if. I wonder if Jesus, when faced by this woman taken in adultery, I wonder if memories came flooding back into his mind of late night conversations that his mum and dad had had around the fire of times in the early days of their relationship when it was discovered that Mary was pregnant and that there were those who would have been advocating and demanding the same for her that she should be stoned just like this other woman caught in adultery. I wonder if they'd ever talked about that as a family. 
So Joseph, my friends, is, no, is clearly no minor character in this Christmas story. His decision of how he will treat Mary will determine the fate of Mary and her unborn child, God's son, our saviour. After all, first century Palestine was a man's world and no matter how brave or bold or beautiful Mary was, without the support of her fiance, Joseph, she wouldn't have stood a chance. Indeed, it is not too far of a stretch of the imagine to say the salvation of humanity, one might say, rested in the hands of Joseph, whose religious and legal right and even obligation it was to maintain the righteousness of the family. And Mary's pregnancy out of wedlock meant that things were clearly, clearly messed up. But then an angel came to Joseph in a dream. And wild as the message sound, Joseph believes the angel. He does what the angel tells him to do and even goes so far as to refrain from exercising his conjugal rights until after Jesus was born. He had every right to sleep with Mary. The uniqueness of this guy is that he chose not to. That's why it's mentioned. Partly reason, the reason because he was so incredible. Jesus, uh, sorry, Joseph is apparently unconcerned with the letter of the law or how he will be judged by others. He takes the angel at his word. And this pregnant virgin, if there is ever a contradiction in terms, that's it. But that's the terminology, that's the uniqueness, that's the incredulity of the Christmas story, that we have this pregnant virgin, and he takes her to be his wife. In first century Palestine, engagement was serious business, and in those days you didn't break off engagements. In those cultures you didn't break off because you would need a letter of divorce. But again, Joseph, like Mary, seems unconcerned with the opinion of others. To say Joseph was a unique man is an understatement, and his righteousness is beyond probably any other one else that we see apart from Jesus. Friends, in our culture, we live in a culture that encourages us to speak our minds and to demand our rights. Furthermore, we are conditioned to think that being right makes someone superior. And whilst perhaps not entitled to certain privileges, when you're right, that brings that certain smugness with us. We all want to be right, and being wrong is often associated with feelings of shame and inadequacy. But in all our dealings as followers of Christ, we are called to mix righteousness and mercy. Catherine Schultz, who writes about being wrong and the power of being comfortable with this, in her excellent book, Being Wrong, and her TED Talk, says the following words about the feeling of rightness and smugness that can go with always being right. And it says, I was right, you were wrong, and I was right that you were wrong. I was right, you were wrong, and I was right that you were wrong. Jesus in the Gospels makes it clear that righteousness is not a prescribed set of behaviors. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It is a relational concept. Righteousness is not about being right. It's about doing right. 
Righteousness is not about demanding our rights. It's about leading with our heart. Righteousness takes the spotlight off us and what we know and how we have been treated and what we are entitled, and it makes the other person the priority. Joseph made Mary the other priority. Righteousness means showing the same kind of grace and mercy to others that God shows to us. I have been involved pastorally in too many situations not to highlight the incredible importance of this matter as the followers of Christ. Far too often, marriages, friendships, families, even churches, and much more have been torn apart because we have failed to mix righteousness and mercy. We have been right, but man, we haven't handled it well, and we have not been righteous. You know, in a few days, we will probably find ourselves either sitting at a Christmas dinner or around the barbecue or at the beach or out hiking. We'll be with extended friends and families, and our relationship with some of them will have been scarred and damaged because we have chosen to be right, but have failed to mix in mercy and kindness. And yes, there are, and the, yes, their ideas and words were perhaps sometimes disturbing and hurtful, and their plans were so ill-judged and were maybe wrong, but our, object, our objections and concerns came out wrong. And we were right, but we were not kind, and we were not merciful. This Christmas is an opportunity to put things right. And yet again, in the coming days, we will find ourselves in situations where we want to say something, we want to address an attitude is wrong or to stand against something that is just not right or defend a loved one that has been impugned. Can I encourage us to follow in the footsteps, yes, both of Jesus and Joseph, that when we speak, we choose righteousness over being right and mix righteousness and mercy together. Thirdly, Jesus Oh, I should say, Joseph modeled life to Jesus. See, I believe that Joseph was not only entrusted with the upbringing, care, and safekeeping of Jesus, I believe that he was there to help shape and form the Messiah. Joseph was used by God to be a force that would guide, shape, develop, and prepare the young Jesus for ministry. And what we have here is this incredible divine paradox that Jesus was both fully man and God, that Jesus grew up to be fully man, and he was aided in this process by Joseph. As we lean into Scripture, it is not inaccurate to say that Joseph's influence on the young Jesus was probably quite profound. So often we go right to Mary, we go to the nativity scene, and we skate over this and miss out on this man who likely formed and shaped much of Jesus' self-worth, his understanding, his understanding of God, what the father heart of God was, and what God was really, really like. Remind ourselves that this is such a male-dominated culture that there must have been a man in his life that shaped him. Some of the examples that I believe lend itself to it being Joseph. First of all, Joseph was a carpenter, and we know that Jesus was a carpenter. It says in Mark 6, verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Jose? 
And Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. It takes time, patience, diligence, hard work, and lots of encouragement to learn a trade. And Jesus would have received this from Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus was known as a carpenter. Joseph, I believe, took time to teach his now oldest adopted foster son the skills that he himself had been taught, and he is passing them on to his son. Can you imagine the time they spend together shaping, carving wood, and often starting again when things go wrong? I know that some of the most influential, pivotal, directive times of my life were spent with my father in my teenage years when he shaped and challenged and just did so much for my life. You know, most probably Jesus learned a work ethic, the need for discipline, the joy of providing for his family, the responsibility of paying his taxes, and much more from this, name, this man, Jesus. But not only was a carpenter, but I believe that he probably learned rejection from Joseph as well. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us in the fourth of the servant songs of Jesus as the suffering servant, it says this, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmities, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account. Let us consider for a moment what Jesus, what Joseph, I should say, was signing up for. This was no easy assignment in marrying Mary as he would have been open to endless scrutiny. If you think Joseph acted strangely at first of Mary's, of Mary's conception by the Holy Spirit, how do you think his friends responded? How do you think his family responded? How do you imagine his immediate circle responded? You see, unlike Joseph, they would not have had the benefit of an angelic visit. And in listening to God, Joseph was giving up his reputation. He was giving up his credibility. Can you imagine his friends saying, Joseph, he's had an angel. Tell him that his girlfriend is pregnant and she still maintains that she's a virgin. There's somebody barking mad in this room when it's not us. Come on, don't you think we would say that? On writing about the significance of Joseph marrying his pregnant wife in this male-dominated society, Tim Keller writes these powerful words. He says, everybody in that shame and honor society will know that this child was not born nine or ten months after they had got married. They will know that she was already pregnant. That would mean that either Joseph and Mary had sex before marriage or she was unfaithful to him. And as a result, they are going to be shamed, socially excluded and rejected, and they are going to be second-class citizens forever. By saying yes to God, Joseph was saying no to everything that he had hoped for, including his reputation and his standing in the community. You know, we need to pause and consider this Christmas the significance of Joseph's decision. Joseph would have been an outcast from his own people and he would bear the shame of sins 
he did not commit. Does that not remind you of someone? I'd like to suggest this example of Joseph to Jesus foreshadows the shame that this baby would one day bear on behalf of Joseph and Mary and all of us who know Jesus. That in years to come, Jesus would sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He would literally become sin for his people, so much so that the father who cannot and could not abide sin turned his face away from his own son. He was, to quote Isaiah, despised and rejected of men. It does nevertheless beg the question, and of course we acknowledge that it was not quite the same, but who modeled, who modeled for Jesus what it was like to live in a culture in the midst of rejection, without reputation, without comfort and safety when Herod was after his life? Who was it, who was it that taught him to bear the shame of the sins of others? Joseph. Joseph would have modeled that for him. He would have grown up with that example of a man still living in his community, still being faithful to his wife and kids, and yet still being an outcast. And fourthly, a man of trust. Of all the traits of this man, I think that this one, trust, is the most remarkable for me. Yes, he was a man of obedience, a man of character, and so much more. But for me, I cannot begin to fathom the depths of his trust. You see, Joseph learned to trust and follow God, as did Mary, who let her heart be broken for him, and she ultimately gave up her little boy to death. And it's maybe because I'm a man, I therefore sometimes consider Joseph's trusting in God a bit harder at this stage than it was perhaps for Mary. That's a very bold statement to make. And some of you may disagree, but I actually think it was harder for Joseph to trust than it was for Mary. You see, Joseph had heard from the angel, but he did not feel the first kick in the womb. You see, Mary knew that she had not had sex because she had been there or hadn't been there. You see, Joseph had to trust. He had to trust that he had actually heard God and he had to trust Mary. He couldn't prove it, nor could Mary. I wonder what stress this put on their relationship and I wonder what they felt like going through life together, pushed from pillar to post, chased and harangued. I wonder did they ever think that it's not worth it at all. I wonder, did uncertainty ever creep up on them? I wonder, did they have a list of questions? I don't know. But I do take heart from their trust, and I want to have a trust like them. You know, there is so much more one could say, but as we try to land not only this message, but this series, the characters of Christmas, I want to try and dispel any lingering myth or the notion that may be held by some. The idea that Jesus was raised by a single mum in all but reality, and that Joseph, whilst being a good man, was something of an appendage to their life is, I believe, completely inaccurate. As you lean into Scripture, there's too much evidence that this man was just a small bit part player in, jo in Jesus' life. Musicians, can you <coughs> come and join me, please?
One final, I wonder if in older and more traditional religious cultures and faith communities, their understanding of death and the taking care of the family, and especially the spouse, again, even more so if it is the wife and the mother who has been left behind after the father has died, their taking care of that spouse was something far more prevalent and far more of an issue than it is for us today. They took it as a very, very serious responsibility if a family member had been left behind through the death of a loved one. It was the family's responsibility. There was no state. There was no state that took care of the person left behind. And actually, if you go to the Middle East today in those cultures of the Arabic world and the Israeli world, the responsibility on the family to take care of the mother usually that is left behind is huge. I remember as a, in my teenage years and into my 20s growing up, we would often hear the words of my father saying to us, you know, after my day, you take care of your mum. And there was that inherent threat. I don't know what he was going to do about it because he ain't going to come back from the dead. But there was still that inherent threat. You take care of your mum when I'm not here. And even my kids today will testify to the fact that, hey, I say to them, you know, when I've gone, we always presume that dad's going to die first, don't we? But you take care of mum. And those, my kids have that resounding in the years, years. I wonder if when Jesus was on the cross and with him being the eldest and not being there to do it, he remembered the words. I wonder if he remembered the words of a righteous and godly father ringing in his ears, telling him to take care of mum, which prompted him, Jesus, to instruct and invite John, the disciple he loved, to take care of his mum. I wonder if, even at this moment of death, the influence of Joseph, his stepfather, his adopted father, his foster father, his earthly father, still rung in his ears. So was he influenced by this man. Just put the poem up, please. I just want to read a poem I came across, and it's the last stanza that's really so powerful. Joseph writing these to Jesus through the eyes of the poet Ron Klug says, Sleep now, little one. I will watch while you and your mother sleep. I wish I could do more. This straw is not good enough for you. Back in Nazareth, I'll make a proper bed for you of seasoned wood, smooth, strong, well-pegged, a bed fit for a carpenter's son. Just wait till we get back to Nazareth. I'll teach you everything I know. You'll learn to choose the cedar wood, the eucalyptus and fir. You'll learn to use the draw shave, axe and saw. Your arms will grow strong, your hands rough like these. You will bear the pungent smell of new wood and wear shavings and sawdust in your hair. You'll be a man whose life centers on hammers and nails and wood. But for now, sleep, little Jesus, sleep. I would like to suggest and propose to you that, Jesus, that Joseph is not a peripheral member or character of the Christmas story, that he is key and fundamental to whom Jesus became as a man, both God and man in one person. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.